Jesus says, happy are the poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Happy are the humble for they will inherit the earth. And he goes down these eight characteristics and he's saying, people, this is the happiness you were created for. Welcome to the 30 Second Book Club podcast, a place for people who want to read more books and be in book clubs, but they don't really have time to do either. And so uh, this is a very, very impactful one, too. I'm so glad that you're listening to this one. Um, talking with uh, Dr. Derwin L. Gray with his book, The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. Recorded this about a, a, w- a month ago, just so you know, it, and this it'll make sense why in a minute. Uh, but he's a pastor of a multi-ethnic church in North Carolina, and he's also an African-American. So this interview was recorded before George Floyd's uh, tragic death here in Minneapolis, but after Armad Arbery's tragic death in Georgia. So, Dr. Gray, we're going to start there with you. The problem is this isn't anything new. Mm. Like, this isn't like African-Americans aren't going, whoa, this is new. It's like we had NFL players protest for it and got called unpatriarch by Christians. We've had, uh, I, I mean, that type of stuff was normal. Like this isn't like unusual. This isn't, uh, I mean, from the great recesses of America, this is something that has not been addressed by the church. As a matter of fact, um, there are whole denominations that are built on slavery and racism that consider themselves evangelical stalwarts and guardians of orthodoxy. So like, as a pastor of an uh, of a multi-ethnic church, like this is part and parcel of who we are. Like this isn't, uh, it's not a big deal to us because we've always been talking about it. And so for a lot of my white pastor friends, it's like, man, we saw the vi- video. This is terrible. And it's like, so you only believe us when you see a video. So I think it's important that we understand that nothing happens in a vacuum, that it's not myopic. When we look at the founding of the United States of America, and let's specifically look at the church, um, you know, uh, two great revivals, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield led revivals in America and the barbarism and horrific dehumanization of slavery outlasted both of those. And when we come to the Jim Crow era and civil rights, there were pastors who said segregation now, segregation forever. Um, People like Dr. Tony Evans, you know, he was the first African-American graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. King couldn't even go to a seminary in the South, so he had to go up to Boston. And so like Um, The church in America has failed miserably at understanding the depth of the gospel. The cross that we have preached has been way too small. When you look at Ephesians 2, for example, um, Paul says that God has taken Jews and Gentiles and have reconciled them and made a new humanity. The two have become one. Uh, Most majority culture people They've been they don't they don't even understand the racial uh, animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And like Jesus was Jewish. I'm not sure if brown skinned Jesus would be welcome in a lot of churches in the United States of America because we've done such a poor job of really talking about how the good news is 
God, through Jesus, who is King and Messiah, guaranteed Abraham a family. In Genesis 12, he says, I'm going to give you a family. Paul reiterates that in Galatians 3.8. And this family is made up of every family on the earth. That in Christ, we're all redeemed, righteous, beloved children of God. And so therefore, God not only forgives sins, but he makes a family with different colored skins. And no one in the family is second rate. So therefore, as the body of Christ, we must advocate for each other and reconcile and reconciliation must be at the forefront. And sadly, for a lot of Christians in America, um, they view the Bible through politics instead of viewing politics through the Bible. And the most division in the United States of America, according to research, is between black Christians and white Christians. Mm. And when you have segregated churches, but but let's get to the heart of it, right, is we have segregated churches because black Christians were not allowed to worship with white Christians or they had to be in places of the back and had no roles. Um, the oldest African-American denomination in the United States is the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. Richard Allen started it because he couldn't pray in the front row at his Methodist church. And John Wesley, who founded Methodism, was an abolitionist. So um, he gets carried and thrown out of the church. And that's how the African-American, African Methodist Episcopal Church started. 90% of churches that have black denominations in America started because white Christians would not allow them to be so. And so now we come to this aspect in the church and I've never seen in my 49 years of living, how divided the church is along ethnic and political lines. Um, it, it is, it is utterly astonishing. And I think it's because the gospel we've preached has been too small a lot of times our white brothers and sisters didn't believe us. Well, you know, it's like, well, if you, you know, if you just listen to the police, then this wouldn't happen. And you're holding your head going, do you not have an idea that there are some police who are the problem? It's amazing how people who believe in orthodoxy will deny that total depravity touches systems that you can be a person who is personally against racism, but if you work at a bank that says you can only give loans to minorities who fit on this side of the red line, then that's what you do or you get fired. So it's systemic race, ra- racism. A lot of white Christians don't even know what redlining is, that cities were built upon red lines, that minorities could only get loans that would segregate them behind the thus the red line. And so we have to understand that racism is not just individual. It's also systemic. But the church should be leading the forefront in racial reconciliation because of the gospel. And so as a part of planning Transformation Church, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he is a king and a Lord, uh, we decided that we wanted to follow his pattern and to plant a multi-ethnic church because the church is to be a tutor to the lost world to say, this is what love looks like. And sadly, um, things are not improving. Well, hopefully, <clears throat> as as hard as it is to... Um, see the things, you know, on, on the video, um, 
and the things that are happening. I think more people are opening their eyes to it. Honestly, I am. So I hope that's a, a sliver of hope that every incident that's just tragic and, and people, everyone can kind of come around and just say, okay, this, this was horrible and shouldn't have happened. I hope that opens up more people's eyes um, to that. And I, I think about, you know, the verse that talks about how we're supposed to, you know, ask God to open the eyes of our heart. And I, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. 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 And so frankly, a lot of my hope is in Gen Z and millennials. Um, they seem to really be open to not giving their allegiance to political parties, but giving their allegiance to Jesus. And for many of them, they have friends who are of different ethnic groups. And research shows that uh, the overwhelming majority of white Christians only have white Christian friends, like real authentic friends. And so when you're trapped in an echo chamber, uh, people become stereotypes. Proximity breeds intimacy. And that's one of the beautiful things about our church, Transformation Church, is that uh, the proximity to one another breeds intimacy that someone that serves you communion says, hey, this happened, you actually believe them. And what happens is, is you become an advocate. You begin to care about people who are different from you. And frankly, for the majority of the church in America, it's like, well, that's not my problem. I'm not concerned about about it. Why are these football players kneeling? They're so, uh, they, they must not love America. That's why they're kneeling at the national anthem when, Thousands upon thousands of times, they all said, because we love America, we wanted to live up. We want her to live up to what she claims that she is. And using my platform as a player is the best way to do it. And then some of the hurtful rhetoric, like, well, you're a millionaire football player. What do you know? Well, just because a person's a millionaire doesn't mean they shouldn't care. Like, that's so myopic and so uh, beneath the gospel. Like, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? You want your neighbor to experience what you experience. And one of the difficult things is for majority culture people, simply asking for equality seems like oppression. And I think that's why you're seeing the rise of neo-Nazis and hate crimes and those types of things. America's really going through a birthing pain. We're in the labors of something new and beautiful that can happen. But the church of Jesus Christ must lead the way. And that's why we've intentionally done what we've done at Transformation Church. We've, we've seen thousands of people come to faith. And we can also be about justice for not only babies in the womb, but babies, when they grow up and live outside of the womb, pro-life means pro-life from the womb to the tomb. It's not just um, abortion. Pro-life is immigration. Pro-life is the environment. Pro-life is uh, prison reform. Pro-life is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, mental illness. There's so much more that we as the church can do. And I want to be a part of the solution. So now let's jump to your brand new book, What Jesus Teaches about finding true happiness. And at the very beginning, I had never thought of it this way. Maybe you have, because I'm sure as a pastor, you probably dig deeper into things like this. But uh, you talk about how Jesus was the happiest person to have ever lived. I guess I never thought of it that way. It's kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, man. You know, because what we've done, so nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So even the founding documents of our great nation, the pursuit of happiness, And we typically view happiness as 
good things are happening to us. We're getting our way. We're getting what we want, materialistic things, money. And whereas I think happiness from God's perspective is this rootedness, this groundedness in the deep love of God and the redemptive purpose of God, that happiness is you are fulfilling your destiny and becoming who you were created to be. So glimpses of heaven, like a movie trailer, can be displayed through your life. That's happiness. Following Jesus, um, you talk about this too, that uh, another interesting thing, hey man, um, the Bible only uses Christians three times to describe Jesus' followers. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a word that's used way more. I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, it's it's the word disciple. The Jewish word is talmudim. It, it means a student that Christians were to be students of the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're perpetually learning about the rhythms of his grace, learning about his kingdom. And something that's really interesting, uh, and I wrote about this in my doctoral thesis, is the first time the word Christian is used is in Acts chapter 11, around verse 20 to 26. And it's used to describe the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was the first prominent multi-ethnic church in the New Testament. And the Jewish people didn't know what to call the Jews who followed the Messiah. And the Gentiles didn't know what to call the Gentiles who put down their idols to follow a Jewish Messiah. So in a form of sarcasm, a form of demeaning term, they called them Christians because their allegiance was to Christ. And so even the term Christian was rooted as a new people on the face of the earth because they followed the Messiah. But it was a multi-ethnic people. The idea that Christians could be segregated and not have oneness across ethnic lines was foreign to the New Testament. But the idea is we are disciples. And what I've tried to do in the good life is just walk people through Jesus's divine invitation into becoming who we were meant to be. In Matthew chapter five, verses three through five, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, and he describes eight characteristics of a blessed life or a happy life. The Greek word for blessed is makaros, and makaros literally means happy. And so Jesus says, happy are the poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Happy are the humble for they will inherit the earth. And he goes down these eight characteristics and he's saying, people, this is the happiness you were created for. It's a, it's a happiness that's rooted in something deeper, better, and more beautiful than what happens to us. It's a happiness that goes beyond the surface. It's a happiness that's rooted in we become who we were created to be. Because if our happiness is found outside in what we get, that can be taken away. If it's found in created things, it'll never satisfy us because only the uncreated creator and his purpose can satisfy us. And so that's why we're having a happiness crisis. That's why we're having a, a brain health crisis is particularly in America, we have so much and we're going, why am I not happy? It's because we're chasing shadows and you can never catch a shadow. And I think one of the blessings, if there's a blessing in this global pandemic that we're experiencing, 
is that the sandcastles we have built our life on, this wave called COVID came in, just destroyed the sandcastle, and the foundation of our sandcastle was idols. And Jesus is exposing our idols, and he's saying, there's a better way to be human. Let me teach you what the good life is. Let me teach you what happiness is. And by the way, the happier you are in me, the holier you will become, and the holier you become, the happier you will be. So one of my themes in the book is this, happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. There's a chapter, whole chapter called Happy Are the Sad, which seems counterintuitive, but you talk about that there's, when, when you have sadness and pain, that actually helps you kind of find your purpose. Yeah, man. You know, as American Christians, we, um, we don't have much time for the ancient spiritual discipline of lament. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, happy or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lamenting or mourning is a holy sadness in which we look at the world and say, this is not the way it should be. And we give ourselves time to grieve. We don't grieve much as American Christians because we're too busy trying to produce and accomplish. And if we dismiss grief, we forfeit spiritual growth. If we dismiss grief, we forfeit spiritual growth. And by taking time to grieve, to mourn, to lament, a couple of things happen. One is we get solidarity with Jesus himself. Jesus came to earth and he experienced everything we ever experienced without sin upon the cross. Like he knows our pain intimately Two, When we lament, we have solidarity with people that are hurting. And when my heart hurts for what hurts someone else's heart, my capacity to love expands. And that's what God wants to do is create lovers for God who is love wants to create us to learn how to love. And then thirdly, as we are mourning, we have hope. Why? Because we know because Jesus walked out of the tomb as new creation. One day, new creation is going to walk into the old and all the sad things are going to become untrue. All the wrongs are going to be made right. But until that resurrection day four, we're moved to action. So our lament moves us to action. Another way I said is this. Pain moves us into our purpose. And what's our purpose? To love the world, to be merciful, to kind, to be wounded healers, to be givers of grace. So, yeah, happy are the sad. Talking about that, too, in in your chapter, Happy Are the Hungry and the Thirsty, I thought it was kind of interesting. um, Another great insight about Sometimes it's easy, especially now talking about purpose. Maybe you don't feel like you have purpose. I thought this was really cool. You, sh- you shared that you are the answer to someone's prayers. That, I mean, that's so powerful. What a powerful yeah. thought. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's beautiful that the living God invites us into his story of redemption. And when the Bible says that we are the body of Christ, that's not metaphorical. That's literal that we do Jesus' bidding here on earth. And so as we grow and as we mature, a part of the good life, a part of happiness is we have an opportunity to answer people's prayers. Like I can't tell you just over the years how many times people have just been desperate, broken, hurting, and God has allowed me to stand in his steed and be a means of grace 
and they go, wow, this is an answer to prayer. Um, it just it just blows me away. And I think a lot of times and I want to say this respectfully and kindly is a lot of times we actually as American Christians don't worship Jesus. We use Jesus. And what I mean by that is we follow him because we think he can give us what we want versus no, we follow him because sin and death held us captive. And by love and grace, he set us free to be about his will, not our will. And what's beautiful is when we lose our lives, that's when we truly find our lives. Like that is the good life. For those listening, I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. I came to faith at 26 years of old as a, as a, as an NFL football player at the top of life. I had everything that I thought that could make me happy, but the things that what I had could not buy were the things that mattered. I couldn't buy forgiveness. I couldn't buy healing for a hurt heart. I couldn't buy courage to overcome fear of not being a football player. Um, I couldn't buy how to become a husband. Um, And Jesus freely gave me those things. And so, um, man, and God, Jesus wants you to sit at his feet and not do anything. Just just sit and let him love you. Just just sit and let him overwhelm you with his grace. And he just invites us into this good life, man. And and it's not a life where everything goes good, but it's a life in which you know that everything is worked for the good to conform you to his image. In the chapter, uh, uh, happy are the merciful. I think sometimes mercy and uh, being merciful is is a word that's thrown around a lot. And sometimes it can kind of lose its meaning. So I love Mm -hmm. that you go through one of the most incredible stories about mercy in the Bible, the good Samaritan and, and, and what it can teach us about mercy. Oh man. Yeah, totally. And sadly, a lot of times when the story of the good Samaritan is taught, we really miss out on the ethnic tensions. And so Jesus, when he shares that story, he's talking to a scribe, which is a Jewish lawyer of the day, a, a expert in the Torah, which is first five books of the Bible. And Jesus, you know, he's questioning him, trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And he asks Jesus, well, what's most important? Jesus answers, Shema Israel, Adonai Eleheinu, Adonai Achad. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. And the scribe knows that that's right. And then he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story about a good Samaritan. Um, saying a good Samaritan would be equivalent to saying a good Nazi. It, it just Jewish people and Samaritans had a 400 year blood feud. Samaritans were biracial. They were Jew and Gentile. They worshiped differently. There was nothing good about them. And so when Jesus describes the story of the man coming down from Jerusalem, he was coming down from Jerusalem and he got robbed and he was a Jewish man. He got he got robbed and a priest and a Levite coming down from Jerusalem as well, passed him by. Now, because they had already come down from Jerusalem, they had done their priestly duties. So there was no fear of being contaminated with a dead body. So they actually could have helped him, but they chose to walk by. And then Jesus says, and a good Samaritan stops And the Good Samaritan showed this man mercy. He showed an enemy mercy. Jesus says, love your enemies. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. 
Can you imagine if Republican Christians and Republican Democrats actually believe that? <laughs> and so the Samaritan shows mercy. And you know what mercy does? Mercy has a cost. He pays uh, for this man's end 14 days of wages. He puts wine on the wounds, which costs money. The alcohol would kill uh, bacteria. Um, he puts oil. That's to keep the wound moist. That costs money. So mercy is not afraid to go across ethnic lines. It's not afraid to spend money. Mercy is not afraid to care. And here's a few insights. What is a Samaritan? A Samaritan is a Jewish person and a Gentile person in one body. What's the church supposed to be? Jews and Gentiles in one body. What's the church supposed to be? Wounded healers that are merciful. So in this parable, in this story, Jesus uses a Samaritan, a hated figure, to be a portrait and picture, not only to teach us what mercy is, but also to teach us what the church is to be. And one last insight is in the story of the Good Samaritan, every human being is the person who's been beaten up by robbers and left for dead. The robbers are sin and death. And Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan who came down from the new Jerusalem called heaven. And he came to us on the cross and it cost him something. It cost him his life. And what did Christ say? Drink this cup, drink this wine. This is my blood. So the Good Samaritan is a portrait and picture of Jesus. The Good Samaritan is a portrait and picture of what the church is to be. The Good Samaritan is a portrait and picture of what mercy is. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be merciful? Can you imagine being married to a merciful spouse and raising merciful children and the world populated with merciful people? Well, that's the good life. As we're talking about, you know, what, what is what does it look like to be happy? I think a lot of times I see this and, and I never put it this way, but you did. And I thought, OK, yeah, that makes sense. You know, as you're listening to maybe to a, a church sermon that, that really hits you or, you know, even I'm, I'm on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and I see a little 30-second clip of a pastor, I'm like, oh, that's great. A lot of that ends up sounding like uh, what you say is uh, self-help coach Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> dig, dig a little deeper into that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I want people to hear my heart. Like, I'm not trying to be critical, um, but, man, I love Jesus. I love his church. I love his flock. And sadly, we live in a day and age where most sermons sound like a Jimmy Fallon um, comedy act and here are four or five ways to fix your life and some pixie dust Jesus sprinkled on top. And it's so foreign to the New Testament. I mean, it is it literally it really sounds like TED talks a lot of times mm -hmm. versus really exegeting the scriptures, exploring the majesty and the beauty of who Jesus is. And so what I try to do in a good life is, is I am a, I am a scholar. Um, I love theology. And I believe that one of the aspects of genius is to make the complex simple. And so I want people to love Jesus for who he is and not for how they think they can use him to, promote their own purposes. So let me give an example. When I was a football player and I wasn't a Christian for the majority of that time, 
I would pray prayers for God to bless me to play good. I never prayed, God, make me more kind, make me more generous, make me a servant. May your will be done. Stop my sinning. No, it was, you are an ATM in the sky. If I can just say the right code, I can get some money out of this. I can get a blessing out of this. And I want people to understand that the blessing is Jesus himself. That intimacy into me, you see, is the blessing himself. That Jesus himself is the pearl of great price. That Jesus himself, as Paul says, is the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's why Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 32 Jesus says, listen, the Gentiles pray for food and clothing and all this other stuff. God knows what you need. But what we need most is him. Like, wouldn't it be sad to have the whole world but not have him? And a lot of times, a lot of our preaching and teaching and discipleship is nothing more than how do I make my life work? And how does Jesus help me to do that? And God is inviting us into something so much more beautiful so much more glorious. He's like, I'm inviting you to actually become my body on earth, that your job becomes supernatural. Your parenting becomes supernatural, that everything about your life changes because now you've lost it. But by losing it, you find your true life. I mean, if somebody would have told me Derwin, uh, you as a compulsive stutterer would one day be a pastor of a church of thousands of people and the influence we have, and you'd write books. I was like, no way, man, because my goal was to play 10 years in the NFL, either become a college coach or um, to become a stock broker. But man, as I look back, what I wanted was way too small. And I'm not talking about economics because you you make way much more money being a football player. I'm talking about quality of life. And quality of life doesn't mean that your kids don't go through things. Quality of life is your relationship with Christ. Like, can I give you an example of what I mean by the good life? Yeah. So my son uh, was one of the top high school defensive backs in the country and he got recruited by a lot of schools and um, I've been training him his whole life. And so in the state championship game um, he's playing and he gets his leg broke and I've been around the block long enough. I, I knew he was really hurt. So I got to run out to the field and the doctor was doctors were there. So I moved him out of the way and I grabbed his hand and he had a tear rolling down his eyes. And I looked into his eyes and I said, son, I am so proud of you. I said, man, I love you so much. I'm so proud of the man that you are. And bro, if this is a way to go out, man, this is the way to go out is you literally sacrificed your body for your team. So he stopped crying and we go to the sideline. The crowd is applauding and he's on the bench and his ankles like just huge because the ligaments are shredded. Um, it's dislocated. His leg is broken and I'm looking at him and on the inside, man, I'm about to freak out because as a player, I've broken my leg. I've been hurt, but when you're hurt, it's different. I can handle that. But when my babies get hurt, even though he's like six two, two 215 pounds, he's still my baby. 
And I'm looking at him and I'm looking in his eyes and he looks at me, man. He looks at me and he goes, dad, God is so good. And I'm going, what are you talking about in my mind? He goes, dad, God is so good. And I said, son, what do you mean? He goes, dad, I could have got hurt in game one. Man, it could have been a lot worse. And I'm going, dude, if you looked at your ankle, it's worse. And he's and he's like, he's like, man, I could have tore up my knee. And he's like, man, God is so good. Friends, that's the good life. That right in the middle of pain and brokenness and stuff not working out the way he wanted or I wanted it. Jesus was right there with us. And my son at 18 years old is going, God is so good. And to fast forward on his story, um, he went to college um, to play football at Wake Forest. He decided to retire. He believed God is calling him to go to Europe and to leverage the gospel either in politics and or the business world. He speaks fluent Norwegian. He's majoring in German and political science, going to minor in linguistics. And I'm going, man, that's the good life. That's the good life. That's the good life. Like, that's what it means to be happy is your weeping tears. Your son is in pain and he's going, God is so good. And it encouraged my soul even to this day. That's what I'm trying to help people get. I think uh, we, we, we touched on this at the very beginning of the interview before we really jumped into the book. But you do have a, a section in the book uh, in the chapter. Happy are the peacemakers. Talk about how can we become cross-cultural peacemakers? Yeah, man, that was uh, uh, happy are the peacemakers was the hardest chapter for me to write in the book. And here's why is I knew that a lot of people. Um, by God's grace, like it is a phenomenal book, but whenever, particularly with my white brothers and sisters, like, oh, here we go. We're talking about race again. And it's like, man, if you're tired of talking about race, imagine how people feel who actually experience racism feel hmm. like, I wish I wouldn't even have to discuss it, that it would be a normal part of our discipleship, but because it's not, I have to. And so First of all, is we have to pray and say, God, give me a heart for every human being. And here's the theology behind it. Treat everybody like Jesus died for them because he did. Hebrews 2.9. And then secondly, uh, build authentic relationships with people of different ethnic groups. Uh, Growing up, my best friend was an Italian guy named Joe. He was from Queens. Forget about it. What are you talking about? (laughs) And I grew up with Latinos and um, I grew up with cowboy white dudes. I grew up with white dudes who did hip hop and breakdance. Like I've always grown up around diversity. And that was not even being a Christian. When I entered the Christian world, that's when it became segregated. And so what I try to lay out in Blessed are the peacemakers is one showing people that you are created to be a bridge. You are created to sow seeds of peace. And so what you do is you pray. And then secondly, you you ask God to give you authentic relationships to where you become a student and a learner. Seek to understand before being understood. So, for example, my wife is from Montana. 
And the first time I went to Montana, I was like, this place is beautiful. And we're driving along. And then I see a sign that says Indian reservation. And I was like, wait, 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 human beings live on reservations. Like Indians live on reservations. And as I began to learn about the history of native American reservations, so much uh, mental illness, so much substance abuse, addiction, um, a lack of education, poverty. And as I began to study this more, it's like, oh, my gosh. The generational oppression has stripped so many people of their dignity that even now, as we talk about COVID-19, the res or reservations, they're being hit so hard. And does anybody even know or anybody even care? The people who originally lived in this land are on reservations and COVID is decimating them. And so what my, my daughter Presley and I, what we do is every 4th of July, uh, we go to a reservation and we celebrate 4th of July with the Native Americans. We, we imbibe the culture. We learn. And one of the most, and if I start crying, just forgive me, but one of the most moving things is from the oldest to the youngest, they gather everyone. And then again, from the oldest to the younger, youngest, they announce every Native American who has served in the United States military. And I look at that picture and go, you're serving in the military of a country that took your country. And I go, that's what peacemaking looks like. That's what humility looks like. That's what dignity and honor looks like. And so, yeah, I, I, I write out some very practical things. And man, it is so beautiful to be a part of being able to be a peacemaker. Years ago, I was preaching and after I was done, I was greeting people and shaking hands. And I noticed this white guy, probably in his 30s, just running towards me. And as he got closer, I saw he was crying and there was snot dangling from his nose. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> If this dude is about to do something crazy, I can hit him with my right hand and still avoid the snot. Well, as I was processing, bro, he was on me and he was hugging me and just weeping, just weeping. I don't know where the snot went, but the next thing I heard is he goes, I can't believe I'm in church. I can't believe I want Jesus. And I can't believe my pastor's black. I don't even like black people. And from that moment, fast forward, we disciple him and his girlfriend. Uh, she was also white. She's just gotten out of prison and we're discipling them. And they're like, hey, we need to we need to get married. So she asked me, would you walk me down the aisle? Because my father disowned me at 16. So. I have the honor of walking her down the aisle. She's wearing blue jeans. She's wearing a white top. That's a tank top. So you can see the barbed wire tattoo around her bicep. We're walking down the aisle and this guy, he's crying again. I get to where he is with the bride. I run behind the pulpit and say, who gives this woman away? I run back, grab her hand. I say, I do. And I turn around and I officiate their wedding. And the overwhelming image that I have is this. God turned a racist into a gracist. The Lord allowed us to love that hate out of his heart. That's the good life. That's happiness. Like I've been on vacations. I've been on cruises. I've been able to experience some great things. But the happiness that God wants us to have that's deeper and more lasting, that's it. 
that's the happiness that changes the world. She was thrust into homeschooling uh, with her young kids, and she learned a lot from it. She wants to share some ideas on how to teach your kids, too, along with teaching your kids spiritual truths. And to help out with that, Tara McClary Reeves has written a book with 365 devotions for parents and children called Point Me to Jesus. And she'll share more from her devotions and just how to get through this time of you know, your kids being home more often and, and how you teach them while they're at home. That's, that's next week here on the 30 Second Book Club podcast.